Hey, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Ben Owens. He's a former mechanical engineer who became a math and science teacher in a public school in rural Appalachia and then founded a nonprofit called Open Way Learning for Changing the Way We Do School. He is also the co-author of Open Up Education, How Open Way Learning Can Transform Schools. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Ben Owens is an education strategist and coach with experience helping schools create the cultural conditions that allow authentic, localized innovation to thrive in their own learning communities. He specializes in working with schools to retool their approach to collaboration and the free exchange of ideas and resources by applying the core elements of the open source movement, one of the primary drivers fueling our innovation economy. This open way learning approach allows teams to develop, remix, adapt, and sustain a culture of authentic innovation that nimbly responds to the just time needs of each student. Such innovative approaches include competency-based learning, project-based learning, distributed leadership, design thinking, true personalized learning, and high-quality STEM teaching and learning, all implemented with fidelity and sustained for the long term because they are rooted in the DNA of a school's culture instead of being short-lived fads. As an engineer who spent a 20-year career in manufacturing locations across the U.S., Ben saw firsthand the essential need to rethink student success so that it was less focused on siloed curriculum and test scores and more focused on the skills, knowledge, and dispositions needed for students to thrive in a rapidly changing world. He left the corporate world in 2007 to do something about this by becoming a public school teacher in Southern Appalachia. Ben taught physics and math for 11 years at Tri-County Early College and in that role was able to work with a dynamic team of peers to craft and scale an engaging approach to student-centered teaching and learning that blurs the lines between what happens in school and what happens in the real world. Ben is the co-author of Open Up Education, How Open Way Learning Can Transform Schools, a book that makes a compelling case for a way our schools must be more open if they are to truly prepare students for a rapidly changing world. He was a recipient of the 2017 Bridging the Gap Distinguished Teacher in STEM Education, the 2016 North Carolina Center for Science, Mathematics, and Technology Outstanding 9-16 through 16 Educator Award, a member of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Teacher Advisory Council, a 2014 Hope Street Group National Teaching Fellow, and and a former community TA for the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. He is currently an open organization ambassador and is a national faculty member for PBL Works, the world leader in project-based learning. He and his wife live in the beautiful mountains of Western North Carolina. And Ben, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here as well. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, it's Great having you. And uh, let's start first by talking about you. You spent 20 years as an engineer and then became a public school teacher in rural Appalachia. What were some lessons that you learned when you made the shift? Um, Well, probably the first lesson as my live-in accountant and wife uh, noted out is there was a small pay cut involved (laughs) in that (laughs) career change. Uh, But it was, it was driven by kind of a, a, a passion for me that, 
because I was seeing evidence as, as I guess, a customer of the public education system where I was either directly or indirectly responsible for hiring in locations from the Gulf Coast, the Mid-Atlantic, out in California, and, and some places in between. And we couldn't find that talent. And, and it was because of skills like collaboration, critical thinking, problem solving, et cetera, things that we see on, on mission and vision statements. And because we weren't able to consistently find that, uh, it compelled me to make that move. And I would say to go back to your question, what was some of the <laughs> lessons I've learned with, when seeing that is, you know, I went into that decision assuming that I was going to make get an impact right off the bat. And although I, I was able to eventually uh, make an impact and still think I'm doing so, um, there is what I call the institutionalized inertia of the status quo, which is um, something that, that a lot of educators, I think particularly ones that, uh, that, that are on this podcast recognize. And it's, it's not an easy task to, to really make the fundamental changes that are necessary. So, so that was a sobering um, thing. Uh, and then the other thing I just really um, found to be true is organizations, whether they were outside of education or within education, truly have the capacity you know, in almost every case of every organization I've ever worked with uh, in my previous career and, and currently. Um, I am absolutely convinced that the capacity for change is there. The ideas are there. What tends to get in the way is the bureaucratic minutiae or the way we've always done things or, or, you know, this, that, and the other that inhibit the level of innovation that's really needed. So uh, that's why I'm both, you know, optimistic and I guess I'm, I'm a cautious visionary of, of the change that we can actually uh, make in the education space. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's a, there's some, uh, <laughs> things that kind of slog things down, I guess, if, if slog is a real word, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> no, I have in my mind, it, yep. uh, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this. What'd you like most about working with the kids as a STEM teacher? I mean, you came from being an engineer and, yep. and yep. bingo, you're working with kids. Tell me, tell me what you yep. liked about it. Well, you know, as an engineer, it was certainly a fun and rewarding career. You know, I got to work with truly some of the most, you know, innovative, smart people on the planet, I would say, just, just, a wonderful organization and, and always do, you know, every day was something different, solving problems. And, um, but at the end of the day, you know, I was doing that for, you know, improving the quality or improving the performance of a manufacturing facility or helping ultimately, you know, in my case, working for DuPont, helping their stock price. What was different in teaching is I got to see, a direct impact on students' lives. And I'll try to try to get through that this without getting emotional, but that that is something you just don't experience in any other profession, I would say. You know, perhaps the medical field and, and, and things like that. But when I was able to work with a student who had previously been told directly or indirectly that you were a failure by the system. Um, because they couldn't necessarily perform the way they wanted the, the system wanted them to in math or science or whatever. But when I was able to work with them and give them alternative pathways for success so that they could truly see that success in a really powerful way and, and reignite that passion for learning that every kid has, that was just 
you know, I, I couldn't get enough of that. And, and that is the one thing I miss absolutely the most about jumping ship from uh, teaching into the nonprofit world, um, which I, I would say, you know, if people think moving from engineering into public school was, was a hard decision, moving from the wonderful school that I taught at to, uh, to now run a nonprofit was even harder. I can imagine you made some interesting jumps. So <laughs> nice leaps of faith here. So, uh, but, but, uh, yeah, cool stuff. Thank you for, uh, for talking about that. I appreciate it. You know, it's, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure that we talk about is you lead a nonprofit focused on that's mm-hmm. focused on helping schools create the cultural conditions to allow learner centered uh, innovations to thrive. And this organization is called open way learning. Mm-hmm. Could you take a minute to explain what open way learning is? Sure. And, and, you know, obviously, as you alluded to in the intro, it, it is rooted in this open source mentality. And if you think about what are the characteristics of, of open source, um, you know, it's, it's transparency and collaboration and community and the ability to remix and adapt with rapid prototyping. And I would submit that those principles are certainly applicable outside of just technology and software development. And when we apply them in an organizational context, which we were actually doing when I was, a, you know, about, for a time in, in um, my career with DuPont, I was, I was a manager of production units. Uh, and so we were doing things like that from an organizational uh, context, even though we didn't call it open source at the time, we were, being very transparent. We were opening the avenues for every, everyone's voice to matter. Um, and so that's what I would contend we need to be doing more of in a relatively closed environment of public school. We're very hierarchical, um, you know, kind of say what I do type of environment um, where we don't necessarily give teachers and folks who work on the front lines with our students the necessary um, levers to affect the types of changes that we need to do, micro changes that make us better from day to day, as well as the macro changes that really allow our schools to be more attentive to the, the needs of our local communities and beyond. I, I think that's powerful because, I mean, one of the things that I'm sure you experienced is that when you, uh, I'm a former high school history teacher, mm-hmm. and when you, when you go into that classroom, you know, it, you you can't help but notice that everybody's a little different. You know, it's yep. like they, they all have a little. That all doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. And that's and that's what really makes it cool working with kids is that if as long as you don't try and make it one size fit all fits all is that you end up having this experience of trying to help. You know, you got some kids who get it right off the bat. You got other kids who are are, are struggling way. You know way far away from getting it and then you got others that are all in mm-hmm. all different levels and then you got Absolutely. all different types of thoughts about what's engaging to them and things like this which is Absolutely. exciting and so you know it, what you're talking about there is that when you get this kind of thumb down or thumb mm-hmm. on top of pressure right. not to be right. um you know to think your own way <laughs> that's that makes it difficult so and that's going to kind of lead me into this next part, part which is mm-hmm. yeah I, one of the things you can't escape any description about open way learning without seeing this word innovation. So mm-hmm. let's talk about what you mean about innovation. What, what does it look like and how is what you're talking about different from what schools might be doing? Absolutely. Um, 
Well, unfortunately, innovation, and this is not just education, but it's in general has become one of those buzzwords that you know, people just flat, just, you know, we, we will just change the window dressing a little bit and we'll call that innovative. And nice. uh, that's obviously something that I don't subscribe to. Um, and one of my favorite quotes, uh, which will probably be on my epitaph is, is from Peter Drucker. It says culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, so I think to me, that's the big difference is we talk about innovative strategies and approaches and characteristics all the time. Um, and there's a tendency in education and elsewhere to lurch for kind of the, the next sexy thing that's coming down the pipe because, you know, Hey, that's the innovation that we want to do. That's the thing that's going to change the game. Um, and, you know, I could go into lots of detail with examples. Uh, I think the ed tech industry is pretty, has a, a relatively bad reputation of doing things like this, just remixing the same old, same old and digitizing it. But uh, that's for, that's for another conversation. <laughs> um, but what I, what I will say is that when you take these strategies and you do take the time to invest in understanding what, what I call the open way learning principles, which, which um, my premise is that there are four key ingredients that need to be in place a living mission and vision, a culture of true collaboration, some form of collective distributive leadership, where again, every, every voice at least has the opportunity to, to have say-so in the direction of the organization. Uh, and then the free and open exchange of ideas, the, the, the ability for teachers to, to feel safe and be vulnerable by sharing their ideas and their resources with one another, and as, as opposed to the tendency towards isolation that we see. And I would submit when those four elements are in place, that it then gives us the capacity and the enabling factors then to truly innovate. So that project-based learning, for example, or competency-based or flipped classrooms, whatever strategy innovation you want to point to is now done with much more fidelity and it sustains itself over the long term. And I, I, I don't just say this because this is something that Ben just dreamed up out of nowhere. Uh, I, I've not only in the crucible, I would say, of, of innovation that we did at Tri-County Early College for the 11 years I was there, which was constantly re remixing ideas. And, and we just had an ethos of questioning, you know, what were we doing yesterday? Is it good enough for tomorrow? Um, and in that process, we were able to become a, a a member of the Global Schools Alliance. So it's you know, 15 of the most innovative schools on the planet. And so that allowed then for me to network and then eventually travel to some of these schools from you know, high tech high in California, all the way to uh, Cambodia, to Denmark. And in that process, I started looking for what are those characteristics? What are the underlying threads that all of these schools have in place? So not surprisingly, they are consistent with living mission and vision, culture of collaboration, shared leadership, empowerment, um, but also things like a deep investment in relationships with students. Those students at these schools have agency, that they tend to break down the walls between what's happening in the school and what happens in the communities, um, and that the students are doing high quality, rigorous work. It's, it's not that it's all fluff, uh, that, that students are really doing powerful, um, work that is reflective, I think, of the quality of the teachers and the teaching environment. Um, and then 
at the end of the day, because I'm often asked, like Ben, if you could define innovation in one one sentence, what would it be? Um, and I would say, if you can spend a day at a at a school and you can walk away clearly knowing that the students love to be there because of the the work that they're able to do, um, because of the relationship that they have with their peers and with the, the staff members, the teachers, et cetera. That's an innovative school. And that's something that I have seen as I've traveled around the country and around the world. That's, that's excellent. Cause you know, it's, it's interesting what you, what you're talking about there uh, that sometimes people think innovation is not exact. And it's, it, it's just something about like moving boxes or changing mm-hmm. the name and just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of repackaging something and making it look nice. This time we put a bow on it, you know, or it's just the way I deliver it this time. And, and, uh, and I think it's, it's key in getting to understand what you're talking about in open way learning is understanding that there, there's a difference. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this because you actually went this direction for a minute and I, mm-hmm. I want to take it back to it. Can we talk about some of the challenges that schools face in trying to pursue the concepts of open way learning? I mean, maybe talk about some of those roadblocks that uh, just might appear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, the biggest to me is, is as a physics teacher, it's probably not surprising that I use this term. It's the institutionalized inertia of the status quo, which is um, uh, very hard for us to, to move away from. And, and which is why if we don't bake some of these innovative practices into the culture, the status quo will pull that back. It's sort of like trying to get a rocket to leave the, you know, Earth's gravitational pull. It's not going to happen unless you truly have built in from the get-go the the intentionality to ensure that that happens. And for for this for that to happen in the education context, we've really got to look at our status quo systems. Um, there's a there's a book I actually reference in my book uh, from Rick Hess. Um, he's actually done two on cage busting leader and cage busting teacher. You may be familiar. Your your listeners may be familiar with those. If if not, I would strongly encourage you to read those. But his premise is that um, these systems, this this minutia that we have created over time, largely by adults, um, primarily by adults, obviously, um, are these inhibitors, are these roadblocks, as you're you're alluding to. Um, that allow us to build this artificial cage so that we have this perception that we really don't have any degree of freedom at all. When in fact, uh, we have more freedom than we realize. And back to that point that I made earlier, we definitely, I I would absolutely submit that um, in even some of the most dysfunctional organizations, when you pull away that cage, when you pull away that minutia, and you create enablers for innovation, people start to come to the table with better ideas about how to do things. And that's, I think, the shift that we've got to do. And that's not easy. I'm not absolutely not pretending that we can just wave a magic wand and make that happen because of, you know, a lot of that, those systems have been embedded for a long time. And it takes trust um, and it takes transparency and it takes building that level of collaboration so that we can indeed uh, build the kind of schools and systems that are going to be best for our kids. I like that. I appreciate you talking about that because that is something that there's a, this appearance of uh, um, 
the idea that you can't. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, like you said, it's, it's just the appearance of it. And so you need someone to show you. Sometimes that's, that's all it's missing is that person to say, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you can, this is not a, this is not a problem here. And, and, and if someone never says that to you though, then you get the feeling that, yeah, I'm kind of, my walls are close and I am mm-hmm. not able to, to move forward. So, yeah. I, and I'll give an example. Um, you know, I came in obviously um, into my school, my district, um, somewhat naive. And when I would, I was just not used to accepting no and then walking away. So when someone would say, no, we can't do that. Well, okay. Why not? Well, um, there's a regulation that says we can't, or there's a policy and, and tactfully, I would simply say, well, do you mind if I just get a copy of that and read it? Because I, part of my engineering career, I'd also spent as uh, an environmental manager for one of DuPont's larger chemical plants. So obviously I needed to know how to read and interpret regulations. Nice. So I, just, I just took it upon myself to read and, and actually come back again tactfully and say, well, the way I read this, we've actually got the freedom to do X and Y and Z. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, break the law here or go against policy, but I would submit that there are ways that we can actually do this. So, so that was, you know, and, and you may or may not be in a position to do that, but I would, I would certainly say that there at every school, there is at least one person that can push back in a tactful way to things like that. And, and as Rick has says, bust out of the cage. I like that. That's, that's cool. As you know, it's, it, any, if you were to talk to just about any educator, and especially someone who's who's gone from the classroom into the into principal positions, if they're willing to push back against those things, they've run into, you know, right. where they thought, oh, this is a rule, this is a policy, and they discovered that no, it's it's not. It's kind of like somebody's fiefdom or something that, that right. that's actually where it was coming from. Yeah. And, it's just we've always done it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. So, so let's take a minute. You know, to, to, to talk about something that you uh, mentioned in the book you, mm-hmm. that you co-authored, Open Up Education, How Open Way Learning Can Transform Schools. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it on your website as well. What do you mean when you talk about the fourth industrial revolution? Uh, great question. And, and I'll, I will also um, say that one of the things I do when I, when I do workshops on occasion uh, talking about this subject, I'll, I'll just simply ask folks, you know, let's define what the fourth industrial revolution is, because the, the reality is that we are all living in it. And of course, we know the first industrial revolution, as we move to the steam, uh, the second and third industrial revolutions, you know, more of the information, knowledge, economy, and things like that. But the fourth industrial revolution is this blurring of machine and human. It's artificial intelligence. It's the internet of things. It's big data. Uh, it's the fact that if you have a cell phone right now, some, you know, and, and I won't get into the whole, uh, you know, conspiracy theories or, or things like that, that, uh, that we could go down. But, uh, but you know, you're Silicon Valley to, rightly or wrongly is, is tracking you based on your interaction on Facebook or Amazon or, or, or whatever platform. Um, and that one could argue uh, could be used in the wrong way, but it also helps us. You know, I know if I'm looking for a lawnmower, if I've done some searches, you know, magically, <laughs> you know, in the next hour I'll have, you know, all of my social media will have ads for lawnmowers. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know about that one. Um, so it, that is simply the reality of where we live. 
you know, we are tracked. We, we voluntarily opt into things like this through ways, uh, you know, we, we crowdsource, you know, nobody reads the newspaper anymore to find where they go to eat. They, they, they're, we're crowdsourcing that. Uh, um, so all of these things are done in a way to improve our quality of life. Uh, although there's a, there's a downside to that, but the reality is that that is the, the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and, you know, you look at the World Economic Forum and their predictions for what's the, the future of work look like. Well, it's not reliant upon things that we still hold, you know, tightly to in education. Uh, it's more of shifting to this environment where we are, have to be emphasizing things like critical thinking, have to be emphasizing things like having students solve real problems, complex problems, messy problems working with one another, communicating through various means of, of communication. And my contention is for us to really be ensuring that our students are equipped to thrive in that type of environment, uh, where you know, the jobs that they're gonna be doing aren't even thought of right now, then we've gotta be more innovative and nimble in our approach to to teaching and learning and constantly have our students in these problem solving situations that are reflecting true problems, not, you know, Johnny goes to the store and buys 80 bananas and 20 cantaloupes. <laughs> that doesn't count. I'm sorry. Uh, or deriving the quadratic equation. I'll, I'll tell you as an engineer in, in 20 years, I, I never had to derive a quadratic equation. So it's quadratic formula. Nice. So, there's, there's, <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 so to really, to your point, the, the fourth industrial revolution is, is it, it, we as educators need to know about that as much as anyone. And it's having conversations with our local uh, industries, our nonprofits, our government organizations to see what are the implications of that in their work. And therefore, what are the implications we need to have at that granular level of each classroom? That's awesome. And, and I got I to gotta put something in here because we're at such an interesting time frame, which, by the way, some of what you mentioned is very scary because mm -hmm. I, I know that one of the big names is experimenting with this idea of having stores that, have, that don't have money. You walk in and it identifies you and you're, I'm guessing your funds are in your phone type thing. And, you know, that would... All of a sudden, I have this sort of, I don't know if you know who Douglas Adams was, but I have this world of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy right. where it announces to the world what you're there to buy. Oh, hey, welcome to Steve. Steve, have a nice day. It's really great to see you today. And we see that last time you bought, you know, and right. what? Hush, hush, hush. You know. Right, right. <laughs> so, I, mean, I just have this, this strange sense of that world happening. Hopefully, that's not where it's going. But, right. but you know, it's, it, it's, it, it is interesting because uh, there's so many other things happening. Just like, I mean, one of the cool things that's part of this world is just you and I being able to talk. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking right here. We're, uh, we're doing this activity and, uh, and having a good conversation. And, you know, you're in a state that's a few hundred miles away from me. And, uh, right. and uh, you know, and the other day I had conversations with people that were, one was in California, one was, you know, mm -hmm. I'm in Georgia and the other one was, you know, like in hot, uh, Michigan or someplace mm -hmm. like that. And then I've talked with, people in other countries and and all this type of connectivity has created something and i've actually heard you mention the gig economy yes and i was wondering if that if you could talk a little bit about how that plays a role in this fourth industrial revolution because i think yeah. it's kind of cool to talk about yeah. that well you know a, a little bit about 
my own career, obviously, as we've mentioned, that I've jumped from engineering to public education now to the nonprofit world. That's that's a, a small version of the gig economy, but it's it's I'm moving from one gig to the next gig to the next. And I would submit that, again, whether someone's going to be uh, a barista or a brain surgeon, you may, you may not make that gig jump, but it's, it's possible. We'll, we'll, we'll go there, right? Um, you know, mechanic to mechanical engineer, and I've actually seen that one happen. Um, that regardless, that in either of those careers, you're still going to need to know how to communicate with others. You're going to need to know how to pitch an idea to strangers. You're going to need to know how to work well with teammates and to, and to collaborate and to solve problems. You're going to need to, especially these days uh, in the whole political environment, just speaks to the fact that we've got to be doing a better job of disseminating information, of, of accessing information, analyzing it, determining what's a sound uh, resource and what's not. And we've got to be able to do that quickly. Uh, all of those are skills that I would submit are agnostic to career. Um, and when we see them in a public education context, in many cases, it's on a mission and vision statement, but it doesn't, in many cases, make its way down to the individual classroom level, with, with exceptions, obviously. But uh, we still tend to want to focus on these things that were, um, they were at one time important. And, and I won't try to diminish the fact that, you know, math is, is not important or, or physics or chemistry or Spanish or whatever topic you have, but it can't be the end all. It, we've got to figure out ways. And I think the, the cool thing is we know ways. It's just they're happening on the fringes and not in the, not in the, the mainstream. But how do we ensure that while we're emphasizing those types of knowledge and academic skill, that we also are, are emphasizing with equal value these, these 21st century life skills that students are going to use in a gig economy, in an innovation economy, in this fourth industrial revolution for jobs that we don't even know exist. Very cool. And I, I could talk, I, I, this is just, it, because one of the things that this type of world, this fourth industrial revolution encourages is thinking differently yes. about what that next gig could be and where, where you're going. And, and because so many things are accessible now, things, that's a great term. I mean, so much the electronics and technology mm -hmm. is accessible in so many different ways that it actually, I would think, just really expands your thought processes, which is pretty cool. So absolutely. Yep. You know, in, in chapter two of your book, you talk about planting open way learning seeds. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Um, I think the key seed, um, and really that's, that's in the context of in the book where I'm talking about this, this idea of a living mission and vision, which, which to me is, is something that doesn't just end on the conference room wall or, or at the entry door, that, that you actually see that mission and vision manifested in, in every aspect of the school. Um, and it's this second sense, the foundational sense of having um, collective leadership. Um, now, and, and I would point to an example of that is uh, at my former school, we were um, a teacher-powered school, quote unquote, which is uh, an, an organization that, that actually does exist that certifies teacher-powered schools. But in our case, we still had a principal. Um, so it's not this idea of, you know, this total anarchy. It was, it was a very structured and methodical way to ensure, however, that 
teachers had a voice in things like budget and curriculum and scheduling and all the other aspects of how we ran our school. And, and our principal in that case was, she, she defined her role as a bridge and a shield, uh, a bridge to ensure the communication, the collaboration, et cetera, needed to happen on a routine basis and a shield from the bureaucratic and minutia that was gonna be coming down from the district or state or whatever. Um, so those are kind of those fundamental elements that then allow that culture of innovation uh, to exist. But I, the other um, sort of planting that seed is this disposition towards continuous improvement, um, where you're constantly, you and your peers are constantly thinking about what can we do to improve what we're doing and, and not just be satisfied. You know, even when we have good results, we, we want to take time to reflect um, and then identify what we can do to actually make that better uh, for that next group of students or for that next individual student that has a different set of needs. That's excellent. I love it. And uh, the planting seeds is a great, great way of thinking about it. I, I like that. That's a good, good uh, image to, that you've created there. So, you know, one of the things that I, I want to make sure I get to, because it, it you, you know, you're, you're, we're going to, I don't want to skip ahead to some other imagery that we got coming, but it's, it, it's one of the things as I'm reading your book and I'm reading the description of what you guys are doing and, and working in your nonprofit with the schools and such, there's, there's so many neat ideas or things that you're talking about that uh, really kind of make you go, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get that, you know, and one of those that I had to bring in here is something that's, that's, that's there in the book that I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, uh, about this idea of what undermines collaboration between colleagues. Sometimes systems, unfortunately, do some things that um, don't make teachers want to work together. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the, the key influencers there is this uh, idea of motivation 3.0 that Daniel Pink speaks about in, uh, in his book, Drive, which I reference in my own book. Um, and, it, and so it, it, his, his premise, which is backed in research, suggests that the, the, the old carrot and stick motivation of what he calls motivation 2.0 is, is very much old school. And I would absolutely agree. And he contends that what's needed then for, uh, for one to really feel like they are, they are adding value to an organization, that they're truly part of something that, that is making a difference is purpose, mastery, and autonomy. And so to, to your question, I think we, anytime we undermine those three, then, then we are not enabling collaboration to happen the way it should be. But when we have trust-based systems that are transparent so that, you know, Steve and I can have a conversation because we trust one another and there's no hidden agenda there or that I know that it's not going to result in some type of gotcha later, um, that allows me to fulfill the purpose that I have in life consistent with what I have chosen to do, that gig at the moment. Um, Mastery is this, this idea that I can constantly improve. So that goes back to this idea of continuous improvement. I'm building my skills, not only to better myself, but to better the collective of, of everyone in that organization. And obviously that's, that's huge in education because what we are constantly doing is helping our students also then master their skills. Uh, and then that autonomy. And autonomy, I would submit, is not this idea that I can go and just close my classroom door and do my thing in the classroom. It is this, this idea of 
being able to share my ideas with my colleagues, with my peers, with my principal, with my administration, whomever. Um, and it doesn't guarantee that those ideas get implemented, but it does guarantee that those ideas get heard. And so at the end of the day, I can walk away feeling like, okay, I'm part of this organization, that, that my input actually does matter. Uh, and that makes all the difference. When those elements are in place, then I, I don't have any inhibitions about wanting to collaborate with my peers. Uh, but when they, when you start pulling and undermining that, then that's when we have this tendency towards isolation, uh, which and honestly, back to one of your original questions about this, this shift from engineering to, to education, that to me was the biggest culture shock is that quite frankly, we as educators don't talk to each other enough. We don't share ideas with one another. We don't share even within buildings or within departments. Uh, in, and I'm sorry, but a dysfunctional PLC doesn't count. Uh, but we, we <laughs> but we also don't share across districts. We don't. Now, I, I would say, however, that one of the potential bright spots uh, with this awfulness of COVID and and the total disruption that it's caused, it has enabled by necessity for teachers to do a better job and administrators to do a better job and community members to be do a better job of of actually having dialogue and collaborating with one another the way they hadn't done it before. Um, and that's something that I hope absolutely, uh, after this is in our rearview mirror, that when we go back to whatever normal looks like, that one thing that will be abnormal is that we are collaborating at a much different level. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that, uh, you know, if nothing else, this, this Zoom world or whichever world you're in where you're talking to people has, has made people really kind of relish those interactions with others and, you know, kind of uh, look forward to, because I, I can tell you when, you know, as things are opening up a little bit, what started happening is that when I have a chance to get together with other educators, you see them immediately. They want to talk and they, they'll talk they're, they're talking education and it's cool. And it's like, uh, you know, but uh, they're long conversations that take place because they're tired of these little boxes. And uh, I think that's a, I think it's a cool sort of a positive coming out of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the uh, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about here is you get into this in the, in the book, you get in this uh, shift about what is expected of students. Mm -hmm. Can, can we go there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I mentioned before in, in my travels to, to uh, various schools and work with innovative schools uh, around the country, around the world, um, you see things like uh, advisory uh, at, at every level, including high school. Uh, so the intentional time to build relationships with kids, to address social emotional needs of kids, to, to find out what makes them tick, to find out what difficulties they may be having so that that helps inform the types of decisions you're making when it comes to uh, you know, defining projects that they're going to work on and activities and the scaffolding that they need and the path of growth, which is going to be independent for each kid. Um, instead of just one size fits all, which is totally misguided, but we don't have time to get into all of that. Um, and when you do that, when you make that investment, that then affords you the opportunity to have kids working on really challenging, intellectually stimulating uh, work that, that in many cases is actually helping solve real problems in their own communities. 
uh, and that is huge. So it's holding kids to high expectations. And the example I would immediately point to is um, the Liger Leadership Academy in Cambodia, um, which I had the privilege of visiting uh, pre-COVID. Um, and if you know any of the history of Cambodia, so they, they, you know, it's, it's not a very pleasant uh, history. Um, but this school exists right just outside of Phnom Penh uh, specifically to build leaders for Cambodia, to address the leadership vacuum that the Pol Pot regime created and the, the murders that they did over the span that they were in power. And I'll just give you an example. When I was there, you know, I just had conversation after conversation after conversation with the kids and just was totally blown away with the work that they were doing. Again, the quality of work that was a true reflection of the focus and engagement and the level of, of quality of the teaching staff. Um, and one example just immediately comes to mind is, is a group of, of kids were at, at the time, this again, pre-COVID, but they were, they were on Zoom or Skype calls with NASA engineers to get Cambodia's first satellite launched into space. And I'm just sitting there going, oh my goodness. Here's, here's this school that, you know, struggles to, to meet budget and, you know, doesn't have the best facilities in the world, but these kids are making a real difference. And it's, it's amazing to see. So, you know, I, I, I say that to, to say, you know, if that can happen in that space in that time, if, if the kind of work that I, that we were doing at Tri-County Early College, which, you know, we essentially had no budget and just constant path from, the school to the junkyard to get facilities to to work on our PBL units. Um, it can happen anywhere. It, and it just means we've got to take away that cage, take away that minutia and give the students the freedom, the agency to actually do wonderful things. And it, and it is happening in many schools and it just needs to happen in more. Excellent. I, I like it. That's, that's just that whole expecting them to do and do more and I, and, and yeah. then seeing what they can do is what's yeah. cool. High expectations, but couple that with high support. And if you start there, you've got half the battle won. I would submit. I love it. Love it. You know, toward the end of your book, open up education. Chapter seven is titled be the spark. Mm -hmm. Okay. You got to tell them what you mean. Okay. So that goes down to the, we're, we're really focusing on what you can do as an individual and so whether you are a teacher in a, and you find yourself in a dysfunctional environment or you're a principal or a superintendent, whatever role you have to play, a parent, even a student, you can affect change by simply modeling excellence in everything you do. So, so I, would, I would say be the spark, which is that model. And you're gonna face headwinds, you're gonna face criticism, but just you know, hang with it and do what you know is, is best. And when you continually do that, it's sort of like the, the, um, the movie, uh, you know, you build it and they will come. <laughs> yes. it, they may not come immediately, but they will eventually come if you just stick to that modeling excellence in, in the work that you do. Reach out to your peers. Show that, you, you know, reach out to community members and not just asking for a donation for a spaghetti dinner, but ask, what, can you come in and work side by side with my, my students, Mr. Engineer or, or um, you know, physician's assistant or whomever? Because that's the type of problem solving that we want to have our kids do. 
I love that. And I love that whole chapter because it really gets into where, you know, so you got these ideas. So let's go, let's move. What's, what are you waiting on? And, and I love that. So that be that spark idea is just so cool. And which brings me to this. So what is the first step that a school should take if they want to pursue open way learning? Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that, that uh, my philosophy or our philosophy at open way learning is we're, we're big on open source. So, um, so you can simply visit the website and, and contact us. And even if you don't want to like, like, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks, but all of our basic stuff is open source and available to you. So we don't submit that we have all the answers, but we do point to uh, organizations that, that we have cooperated with and worked with that, that can help. And so we try to assimilate uh, tools and whatnot that, that folks can use. But, but even if you want, don't want to do that, I would, I would maybe start with five questions. One is, do you know your mission and vision? Do your students know it? And could you give it to a visitor and have them walk around and do that kind of litmus test I mentioned before and see the manifestation of that mission and vision in every classroom? Second question, do you have some form of distributed leadership that, that means that every voice truly does matter at the school? Third, have you built trust-based collaboration where people feel like they can truly have collaborative environment uh, and not just once a month and again in a dysfunctional PLC, but that collaboration is, a, is the default and that isolation is the exception. And that's students, that's teachers, that's principals working together uh, in authentic collaboration. Um, next is uh, the idea of free and open exchange. So part of that is, are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to share your ideas with your peers and get critical friends feedback from them? Uh, which also leads into, you know, like who is, who is telling your story? Uh, because if you're not sharing your story outside of your school, then you're probably doing yourself a disservice because somebody else is telling it uh, and they probably don't have all the answers. And the, the final question, and this goes back to Peter Sinji's definition um, related to innovation, is would you consider yourself to be uh, a learning organization? Because he defines a learning organization as one that continually expands its capacity to create its future. So when you hear that and read that, does it pass the red face test? So those are kind of the five off the top of my head questions that you should be asking. And uh, if the answer is no to any of those, then it just means you got work to do. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not on the path. It just means let's go back to that, be that spark and actually identify what is the thing that you can do to close the gap so that you can, uh, indeed answer those questions in the affirmative. Love it. I love it. Uh, ben, it's so cool. And I, and I think that's an awesome thing to talk about because, you know, the, the book opens, you know, back in the beginning, talking about what open source code is and, you know, and this is a big part of our world. And if you don't have that, even as a part where, you know, you share those ideas, I, you know, that's, yeah, we might want to rethink. <laughs> How can we get there, I guess, is the question. So Absolutely, yeah. And, and that premise of there's a saying in the open source community that the code talks. And what that means is, is this whole idea of meritocracy of ideas. So someone who's been coding for 30 years, as opposed to someone who may just, you know, could still be in middle school for, for that matter. And in the open source environment, you 
you go to the platform and you write code and the crowd identifies what is actually innovative. What is, what is that next improvement? And so the code talks. And so the best ideas simply float to the top. And that's the metaphor that I submit that we need to be thinking about in education. When we create those trusting, transparent environments of collaboration, the quote code talks because the best ideas will float to the top. Um, and COVID is a perfect example. We, we don't have a good playbook for this, right? We don't have the answers for how to do this thing. Um, and, and so that means we have to be listening to one another. Because I, there are there are middle schoolers out there who know how to do it better than some of the, <laughs> with all due respect, state superintendents who are mandating uh, this platform of that. You know, it's you're right. I mean, there are there's kids going. You know, I, if you just listen to me, come on, come on. I got I got some ideas for you, and yep. many of them pretty good. So yep. Yep. I like that. I like that a lot. So, you know, Ben, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you and learn more about Open Way Learning, where'd you send them? Where do they need to start? Well, uh, you can certainly go to um, our website, openwaylearning.org. Um, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and you can certainly, the book that you referenced before, I would, you know, I'm, I'm not here to peddle my book, but, <laughs> but you know, if, if so inclined, uh, you'll find that on, on Google Amazon, the, the other bookers, whatever platforms. Um, and and if, if you go to the website, there's a contact information at the bottom. Um, or you can just email me directly. I'm, I'm good with that. So it's been at openwaylearning.org. Excellent. Excellent. And I will have links in the show note as well as your uh, Gmail address and uh, links to the book too, because the book's good. They, you know, I know you're not, you said you're not peddling your book. It's, it's an excellent read and they, they, it'll give them an idea what, what the expectations are here. So good stuff. Uh, and Ben, before we go, I've got two questions that I'd like to ask you that uh, are, are just my own design. And it goes like this. Uh, the first one is when life gets tough and you start getting so much stuff thrown at you that you may want to quit, how do you keep going? Oh, great. Great question. Um, well, folks who know me know that I am a huge Stephen Covey fan. And that was actually when I first became an engineer with DuPont, they were doing a book study. And this was all the way back in the age myself in the, the late 80s. Um, but they were doing a book study on Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So um, I use that you know, to this day, I, I think about things like sharpening the saw and being win-win and, and, you know, all of those elements that just keep the, the sanity of life where it needs to be. And, it, and, and so that's, that's a big part of it is, yes, you, you do hard work, you do invest in what you need to make a difference with whatever the, your career is, but you've got to also take time to, to prioritize, to think about the big picture um, and, 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 and spend time with those that you, that you care about and doing things to really, uh, self care. Cause if you don't do those, uh, and I've seen it all too often in and outside of education, you will absolutely burn out. And, um, I know this is so true right now with, with our teachers and, and folks who are dealing with this, this crazy thing of hybrid and remote learning, um, which is truly a heavy lift, um, but I, I would encourage them to you know, make sure you invest the time to, to step back and, and, and exercise that self-care. You know, spend some time every day, just kind of quiet reflection or whatever you need to do. Excellent. 
Uh, awesome advice and uh, great book to to always be able to make reference okay. to. So awesome, <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, last question: Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Oh, that's a, that's another great question. Um, well, um, I was the son of educators. My dad was a college professor. Um, and, and in fact, he was a college art professor and everybody assumed I would follow in his footsteps and become an artist. So my, my teenage rebellion was to, to become an engineer. It's nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, he never knew that I became a teacher. Uh, he passed away before, um, before I, I, I made the, the jump from, from engineering to teaching. And, and probably the biggest regret of my life is that, that I had not had that conversation because it was, it was kind of bouncing around in the back of my head. I wish I'd sat down and chatted with him about that. Uh, what would have been the eventual move that I made, um, because he never got to see that. So, um, but he, as an educator, and I have a, a quote from Paget that, that sits over, um, my desk at home, um, that he wrote that, that, influences the work that I do that, that builds on that idea of, of listening to our students first and, and starting there. Um, so, so he is obviously the, the inspiration and, uh, and I would, even though he never saw me make the jump, I would still say thank you to, to inspiring me to do so. That's so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. And, uh, and Ben, I can't thank you enough for talking with me today. Open Way Learning is an awesome approach to learning. I love it. Your, your book, Open Up Education, How Open Way Learning Can Transform Schools, is refreshing and an inspiration. And, and it's, just, it's just awesome thinking about um, the drive that you're, you're going to uh, get schools to, to key into that idea of innovation and uh, tap into where we're, you know, this world that we're, uh, where we are and where we're going. So I thank, thank you for being a spark and wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you, Steve. I, I greatly appreciate it. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> Opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.